please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 49. This morning is the 13th and final installment in a series we've been covering this fall, looking at kind of the highlights of the patriarchs of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And this morning we turn to one of one of Jacob's lesser-known sons. His name is Judah. But before we begin, I want to ask, or I want to share with you this quote, which I've actually shared with you before. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. This is written by A.W. Tozer in his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer goes on to point out something that I think should be obvious. Not only is what you think about God the most important thing about you, but it's essential that what you think about God corresponds to who God is as much as possible. But many of us don't really know what we think about God, and when we discover what we know about God, we learn that what we think is not at all what God is like. This is the intellectual equivalent of idolatry. And while this gift might not be exactly at the top of your Christmas list, God, purify my understanding of thee, Elevate my concept of thee until it is worthy of thee. That request, though we are slow to make it, is indeed the best thing we could ask for at Christmas. Speaking personally, it's not exactly what I want to do because I know when God purifies my thoughts of him, it often involves a painful an extended ordeal of difficulty. But the good news is, is that what you and I are slow to do, God helps us to do. It's in his love that he doesn't allow us to remain in ignorance or in error. And the removal of the blindness, Paul's scales that fell from his eyes, or if they're not that thick, if it's just a gauze of ignorance or inexperience, that removal is a gift of God's grace. It's what he does in love. He pursues us. We pray and, and confess in the Shorter Catechism that one of the works of the Holy Spirit is that he enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. God uses hardship, and this is good news, hardship, trial, and painful ordeals to clarify and purify our understanding of him. Think about Joseph. We've been studying him. Joseph didn't exactly want to be thrown into a cistern. He didn't imagine when he went to check on his brothers that he'd be begging for his life. Brothers, don't do this. Set me free. And listening to them essentially barter and negotiate whether they would actually murder him 
or as we'll see in a little bit, Judah's compromise suggestion that we just sell him into slavery to a band of traitors that was coming down the road. And this refinement didn't, didn't happen just in that pit. It took place over the course of the next two decades of Joseph's life. And likewise with his older brothers. God used the little brother, Joseph, to put his older brothers through a, an analogous painful ordeal. The purpose of which was to help them get a clearer picture of what God was really like. Joseph calls them spies. He plants the silver cup in their baggage. He puts them in prison for three days. And then he aggressively and particularly questions them about the littlest brother of all, Benjamin. And this is painful for everyone involved. I mentioned last Sunday that Joseph weeps, openly weeps, three or four times during this process of what I called a modest pursuit of justice. But along the way, the brothers' misconceptions about God are exposed. Again, this is what hardship does. If we're paying attention, hardship and suffering reorients our minds to the God who is rather than a figment of our imagination. We're brought up to date if it's an operating system. It's an update, it's a shutdown and a reboot and a better alignment between man the creature, between you the creature, and God the creator and the redeemer. And this is what we see happening at the end of the book of Genesis, especially in Jacob's life and in one of Joseph's brothers named Judah. Now, as I mentioned, he is a lesser known brother. You might not even recognize his name. It's true, Judah hasn't played a very large role in the story so far. But I hope you discover this morning that it's Judah at his father Jacob's dying bedside who receives the greatest blessing of all the 12 sons of Jacob, greater even than the blessing of Joseph. What comes through Judah's blessing reveals a picture of God that you need to see this Christmas, a picture that I hope will correct some or much of your misunderstandings of who God is. It is a picture of a mighty God able to do awesome things in the world, things that far exceed your and my puny imaginations, but also things that subvert our human expectations. I want you to discover in this morning's message through three lessons in Judah's blessing that your thoughts about God might not quite match God's reality and God's thoughts about himself. I also hope that some of you might realize that you're going through a painful ordeal for a purpose. It's a theological purpose. You're in, you're in seminary. You're in a theological class with God. Your hardship is purifying and reorienting your minds towards who God really is. It may be that blessing in disguise. God just might be helping you discover some misconceptions you have about him that will help you better appreciate who he really is this Christmas. My text that I'll be reading is verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49. 
but I'll, refer, I'll be referring to a few other passages along the way as well. Three lessons from Judah's blessing by Jacob. And after reading the scripture, I'm going to pray that God would illuminate the preaching of his word to our hearts and minds this morning. But first, this is God's eternal word. Read with me. Follow along as I read Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah's blessing. As for you, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So far the reading in God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of scripture and for this brother of, of Joseph, the son of Jacob, named Judah. We ask that the blessing that was given to him might help us to clarify and to purify our thoughts of you and to help us make sense, perhaps, of the hardship or ordeal that we may be going through. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three lessons from Judah's blessing. The first is that the likelihood of Judah, Judah of all people, being blessed is extremely small. So the first lesson is that Judah being blessed in this way is unlikely in the extreme. He would be in a high school senior class party, the least likely to be blessed, maybe the second least likely to be blessed of all the brothers. Why is this? Well, in order to understand, we need to review Judah's story a little bit. Who was blessing Judah in the first place? Just as a reminder, it's Jacob, the third patriarch, the son of Isaac, the grandson of, J of Abraham. And Jacob had settled in Goshen, having discovered that his son Joseph, after 20-plus years, he thought he was dead, having been told a lie by the other ten brothers that he was devoured by wild animals. Jacob discovered that Joseph was alive, and not just alive, but the president in Egypt, such that he had been providing a means by which Canaan and, and his particular family, who was in, in, a, in a season of famine, might survive. In fact, Jacob had been settled in Goshen, the choicest part of Egypt, for almost 20 years. And at last, Genesis 48.1 tells us that Jacob has become ill. After this, Genesis 48, 1, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. Scott prayed for the family of one of my best friends, Trevor Williams, who passed away this week. I'll never forget 
as long as I live, the phone call I got from Trevor on May 10th. He said, I'm going to the hospital. I'm not sure when the next time we will speak will be, or I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to get together with you, he said. This is the kind of message that Joseph was given. Behold, your father is ill, your aged father, your infirm father is ill, you need to come. In Jacob's illness and in his final days on earth, we find that Jacob has changed. He's not the same man he was when he came out of the womb grasping his brother Esau's heel. He's not the trickster and the rascal, although I'm sure it was still hiding under there somewhere. He is a mature, sterling example of a faithful, believing patriarch who has in many ways outgrown and repented of the foolish disobedience and stubborn unbelief that characterized him as a younger man. And this is the man who is ill. And knowing that he is ill, he gathers all 12 sons to his dying bedside to speak a prophecy given him by God, Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. This is a, this is a combo pack here. We have a patriarchal blessing combined with a heavenly prophecy welded or wedded together into one. This is a prophecy of blessings, some of which sound a lot more like cursings than blessings, for all 12 sons in sequence. Now, where is Joseph in all of this? Well, while still governing Egypt, just prior to the blessing of all 12 brothers, I, I just told you that Joseph was informed. He was informed first that his father was ill. And so Joseph alone is called to Jacob's dying bedside. And when Joseph comes, he brings his two sons, Jacob's grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And that's the substance of Genesis 48. In Genesis 48, we find Jacob adopting Joseph's two sons as his own sons, effectively Distancing Joseph from him, if you will, by half, but bringing his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, into the circle of his own sons. Sets up an interesting situation in which the father, who has become the father of his father, because that's what we're told, Joseph has become the father of Jacob and the father of Pharaoh, for that matter. So the father is now brothers with his sons by his father's adoption of his grandsons. If you followed that, then you're, you're more intelligent than I am. I had to really work on that. This effectively gives Joseph, through his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, it gives Joseph the double blessing ordinarily reserved for the eldest son, which would have been Reuben. It effectively gives Joseph two shares in the promised land for every one share of his other 11 brothers, 10 brothers. 
But Jacob reverses the order. Manasseh is the eldest, and Ephraim is the youngest of his two sons. But when Jacob goes to bless Manasseh and Ephraim, he blesses Ephraim, the youngest, first. And when Joseph, always the traditionalist, says, Father, you're getting the order wrong, and he moves to switch Jacob's hands off of Ephraim and put Jacob's hand on to Manasseh, the eldest, Jacob says, no, son, I know what I'm doing. See, this has been the pattern, starting with Abraham and his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and then Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau, it continues. It's a reversal of human expectations, of human traditions, and it's also a a tidy little picture of Jacob's own repentance. You see, throughout Jacob's life, he has practiced this a terrible, poisonous thing called parental favoritism. Actually, he practiced spousal favoritism, which is probably just as ill-advised. But he preferred Rachel over Leah, and he preferred Rachel's two sons over Leah's sons. In this moment, when we see Jacob blessing Ephraim, the younger, over Manasseh, the older, I see proof that Jacob's favoritism has yielded to faith and obedience to God. This is the background of Judah's blessing. Now, who who was Judah himself? Judah was the fourth son of Leah, the fourth eldest of Jacob's children, And his conduct in life, as I mentioned, makes him a top contender for the least likely to be blessed by his father, Jacob. That's for a couple of reasons. One, he played a part in Joseph's demise. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, and Judah is on record as being the one who suggests of all the brothers that Joseph be sold into slavery. Now, in Judah's favor, the suggestion that Joseph be sold into slavery, comes as a kind of mediating option between, you know, sort of death, dismemberment, sold into slavery. I'll take sold into slavery, thank you very much. But Judah's compromise feels like punishment nonetheless. He could have had more courage. And then a fascinating and somewhat tragic story of Judah is found in Genesis 38. We get a little side story or a kind of a a side episode in the lives of Jacob's sons. We learn, first of all, that Judah married a Canaanite woman, which was forbidden to the sons of Abraham. And he had three sons by her. Then, after his first son married a woman named Tamar, because... His first son was wicked. The Bible doesn't tell us what he did or why. God took his life. That's in Genesis 38, 7. Then to fulfill the mandate for an heir, Judah commanded his second son to marry his now widowed daughter-in-law in order that a child for the generations might be raised up in the family name. The second son refused. The Bible says that what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, Genesis 38.10. And he was also put to death. 
Judah then promised Tamar, now the widow of two of his sons, that his third son, whose name is Shelah, would, when he's old enough, would be given to her as a husband that she might have a son and carry on the family name. But he never kept his promise. And so Tamar is left to languish in widowhood without any prospects in that society or future. So in one of the strangest passages of Scripture, Tamar tricks Judah by dressing up as a prostitute at a prominent place in the community. And she is convinced, she convinces Judah to lie with her as if she were a woman for hire. And since Judah has no money, but is awfully excited at the prospect, he gives her his signet ring and his staff, two very identifiable features. It's a little bit like your signature. You couldn't deny that they are yours. Tamar, having timed her illicit, incestuous liaison with her father-in-law, just right, becomes pregnant by him. And when it's discovered that she's with child, Judah demands that she be killed. And Tamar says, no problem, I'm happy to do it, just let me know whose these are. And she produces the signet ring and Judah's signature staff. And Judah looks at the ring and he looks at the staff and said, she is a godlier woman than I am. Tamar's reputation is redeemed, and Judah is shown to be both a defeated and a wanton man. This man should not be receiving a blessing from his father. But God is in the business of redemption, renewal, and restoration, and we can see this in Judah's life. Just as proof of redemption, turn to Genesis 43. As Joseph's brothers return to Egypt and come back, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis 44. So twice, as proof of, of Judah's repentance, twice in Genesis 43 and in Genesis 44, Judah expresses remorse over the role that he played in Joseph's being sold into slavery. And we see this in 44:18. Judah goes up to Joseph after Joseph is, you know, he's hiding under the disguise of being the, this Egyptian uh, uh, magistrate. And Judah does not yet recognize him. He falls on the ground and pleads before Joseph for a word in my Lord's ears, Genesis 44, 18. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. And he goes on to tell the sad story of their lost brother. And the story is told in such a way that it makes it clear that Judah himself not only knows that he's guilty, but is sorrowful for the role that he played in Joseph's demise. And this is in contrast, you see, to, to Jude, um, Jacob's first three sons. Let's turn back to Genesis 49. 
The first son who is blessed in Genesis 49.3 is Reuben. Reuben, the text says, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Sounds good so far. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now there's actually a hint of pride in those words. But here's the so-called blessing. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. You see, Reuben went into one of Jacob's concubines, one of Jacob's other wives, and lay with her as it were his own wife. And so Reuben's blessing is to be eliminated from his role as the firstborn son, to be, to be stripped of his privileges as the firstborn son, and to be set aside. God help us that we would not be unstable as water. And then the next two boys... The second-born Simeon and the third-born Levi are brothers. But they're not just brothers in fact. They are brothers in personality. Weapons of violence are their swords. You see, Simeon and Levi were the ones who went on a murderous rampage against the enemies of Jacob's family who defiled Dina, their sister. And while the defilement of Dina was an unholy thing, these men are actually on record as pleading for their lives and expressing remorse. But, they, but Simeon and Levi would not be satisfied. They killed every single individual in that village. So Jacob says in verse 6, Let my counsel. You do not want murderers and angry men as friends. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And we see this later on as Israel enters the promised land. Both Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are divided and scattered. And then we come to Judah. Judah, we are told, will be praised by his brothers. So the first lesson is that the likelihood of Judah's blessing is small. I've tried to show you that. The second lesson is the aim of Judah's blessing is redemption. Jacob, in his blessing for his fourth son, Judah, aims at nothing less than the redemption or the salvation of mankind from the curse of Adam. Take a look at it again. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, Genesis 49, verse 8. The prophecy continues. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. We're to to read here an echo of the promise, the first gospel promise spoken by God in Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. We're to picture Judah or some one of Judah's sons with his foot on the neck of his enemies. This is the position of total victory. Your father's sons, he continues, shall bow down before you. You see, while Joseph was given a place of salvation for the physical needs of Israel during this time of famine, it appears that in Jacob's prophetic insight, 
God has revealed to him that Joseph's role in preserving the family has come to an end. And that preeminent role of salvation and deliverance has been transferred now to this least likely of his sons, if you will, Judah. And what was promised of Joseph, that his brothers would bow down to him, that his brothers would praise him, that his brothers would serve him, that promise has been fulfilled. And now the promise is being transferred to Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Yehuda is Hebrew for he praises. But not only will his brothers praise him, your father's sons will bow down before you. And this goes beyond Jacob's immediate sons to his grandsons and great-grandsons and the generations which follow. Judah, you see, is being given a place of rulership and power. He's described as a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? There's a picture here of of Judah, or one of Judah's progeny, one of his offspring, acting as a lion, first identified as a lion, then a lion about to attack or to pounce. A lion in two stages, if you will. And then Judah is told that the scepter, which is the king's ornament, will not depart from him, nor the rod or the ruler's staff from between his feet. That's an allusion to the place that a king's scepter might be positioned between his feet, but it also has an, is an allusion to the fact that through one of Judah's offspring, between his feet is, is a, a procreative analogy. That one of Judah's offspring will have the scepter of all the tribes. And then this interesting phrase, tribute, comes to him in verse 10. Now, if you're looking at your Bible like I am, in the ESV, there's a footnote. And it says that it might also mean, until he comes to whom it belongs. Hebrew, until Shiloh comes, or until he comes to Shiloh. The word Shiloh is the way to pronounce he who comes. And it's one of the most interesting and mysterious terms in the Old Testament. There are literally entire books written on how to interpret this single word. The strange thing about translating from one language to another is that it isn't always clear-cut how we translate, say, from Spanish into English. Some things just don't make, make it. But when it's an ancient language which has undergone centuries of development and is no longer spoken in that, just that form anymore, the challenge and puzzle sometimes is even greater. And that's the case with this word, he who comes, or tribute comes, or Shiloh comes, or he comes to Shiloh. You say, how can, how can one word have all those meanings? And the answer is, it's the Holy Scriptures. I think there's, there's truth to many of those interpretations. But the main point in this second lesson, is that the aim of Judah's blessing is restorative. And if tribute comes to him, or one of his offspring, then it means that one of Judah's sons will receive everything that he needs in order to provide for not just 
Egypt, not just Jacob's 70 members of Jacob's family, not just the food in that time of the ancient world, but tribute comes from the kings of the nations, you see. This is a taxation that's given willingly. And to him shall be not just the tribute, but the obedience of the nations or the peoples. We're thinking of how the aim of Judah's blessing is salvation or redemptive. Look at verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and the vesture in the blood of grapes. This speaks of something of the nature of the redemption that's, that's envisioned here. It's a redemption in which a donkey or a donkey's colt is tied to a little vine. So it speaks of a time in which there's peace because if a donkey, this is just one way to interpret it, it's quite a mysterious phrase, but my thinking here is if a donkey is tied to a little vine, even the slightest noise, he'll pull away from it and it will tear. And washing his garments in wine and his vesture of blood, vesture, his clothing in the blood of grapes, means that this peace that's procured, the salvation or the redemption that results in the obedience and the tribute of the nations is one that comes in some sense at his own expense. But it's an ironic expense because while we have the the description of blood and wine and garments, there's a victory about it as if this son of Judah himself is crushing the grapes that's dirtying his garments, and grape crushing is the Jewish equivalent of Thanksgiving Day. It's a feast. It's a ceremony. It's a a party of all parties. So the redemption that's coming is an era of peace. It's an era of plenty. It's an era of celebration, and it's coming about through the suffering of this son of Judah. And yet the trampling of grapes is also a description of the wrath of God in the Bible. So there's a hint of judgment as well in this phrase, washing garments in wine. And then this final phrase, his eyes are darker than wine. One way this can be translated is his eyes are red with wine as if He has drunk wine in celebrating all of these many blessings. His teeth are whiter than milk. Wine and milk, again, are signs of prosperity and abundance. You see, all of these things in this prophecy by Jacob speak to the salvation of the world. And all of them are true of Judah because of this prophecy in part, they're true of him in part, but one day they will be true of a coming Savior, of a Messiah in full. Judah will be praised by his brothers, it is true. Indeed, Judah was praised by his brothers and his successive sons and grandsons, all the way down to David, who springs from the line of Judah. But Jesus, the Messiah, will be praised by all his redeemed people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. 
Judah would be honored by his brothers and they would submit to him, the 11 other tribes, particularly when David was raised up after the failed kingship of Saul, who, by the way, was of the tribe of Benjamin. David is raised up from the tribe of Judah. And it's under David that the tribes are united for the first and last time. But 800 years later, it is in Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of Judah, the son of David, that unites all Israel again in himself and at whose feet one day every knee will bow. See, this isn't just a a union and a bringing together of the tribes. Insert Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel chapter 38. This is a union of all nations, of Jews and Gentiles, of barbarians, Scythians, slave and free, of men and women, boys and girls, adults and children. It is a removal of all the human hostilities that emerge from the curse of man at Adam. And it is a restoration of mankind to our created purpose as image bearers of the divine to do the work of God and to bring the glory of God to the world. This is the incarnation. And it's why Christmas is so positive. It's why we spend so much money at Christmas, really. We're so happy and hopeful for just a moment that we can change the world. That, as we will see in just a moment, the lion of the tribe of Judah has come. And the scepter, the scepter of power is is held. And we, by faith, are united to him. The tribute comes to him. Shiloh, the peace has come. Peace on earth. Shalom has been realized, inaugurated at the incarnate birth of the Son of God. This idea that tribute comes to him bears a little more focus as we move to conclude. Coming is the word I want to emphasize. It's the verb in this phrase. He who comes, shalio, shiloh, tribute comes. The word advent means coming. This prophecy anticipates the arrival of a son of Judah. It speaks of the advent. Do you know why Jesus came? At the coming of this son of Judah, nothing remains the same. And Judah gives way to him. Notice the little word, until tribute comes to him. See, Judah, the man, is a placeholder. Judah was the one through whom the Messiah would come. And until the Messiah came, Judah represented an earthly fallen manifestation of the Savior of the world. Hence, David received so much attention in the Bible as the preeminent expression of the offspring of Judah. But when Messiah comes, when the advent of the King of Kings finally arrives, why does he come? 
The Bible says so many things about why Jesus had to come. 1 John 4.10, he comes to destroy the work of the devil. You can hear Genesis 3.15 in here again. It's, it's, you see these two prophecies, Genesis 49, the Shiloh prophecy of the end of Genesis is the perfect human counterpart to the divine prophecy in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. Shiloh will come, and when he comes, all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to him. All nations, not just the tribes of Israel, all nations will constitute the church. He comes, 1 John 3, 1 through 3, that we might be like God. This is Eden all over again. Our, our fellowship, face-to-face, union and communion, creaturely friendship with the Creator. In Christ, the Shiloh has been restored. He comes, 1 John 3, 6, to take away sin. The barrier that caused Adam to be removed from God's holy paradise presence in Eden is taken away in the coming one, the son of Judah. There are tensions in his rule. His coming brings suffering and blood. The third lesson I'll just mention briefly, the outworking of Judah's blessing is in stages. So the likelihood of Judah's blessing is small. The scope of Judah's blessing is salvation of the world and the outworking is in stages. The first stage is entry into the promised land. You see, when Judah comes to the promised land, he is the preeminent leader amongst the tribes. And if you look at a map of the promised land under Joshua, Judah gets a, a tremendous portion. The second stage is, as I mentioned, the fall of King Saul, who's of the tribe of Benjamin, and the raising up of David's tent, which is the tribe of Judah. David unites all the tribes in himself. The third stage is the coming of Jesus, but even that stage requires patience and timing and waiting because Jesus comes to inaugurate the promises given to Judah, but he doesn't fully consummate or fulfill them until his full and final appearing. You see, he's washed his garments in wine and the vesture and the blood of grapes by his bloody death on the cross in this stage of redemption. But when he comes again, he's coming to trample the winepress of the wrath of God. You see, even in this last stage, redemption is worked out over time. First as a lamb and then as a lion. Which brings me to my final text, which is Revelation chapter 5. Let's turn there as we close. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, this is a Christmas text if there ever was one, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a lamp, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. This is the work of the incarnation, to fulfill the prophecy given to Judah in Jacob's dying hour the least likely of messianic heroes. But he wasn't the hero. The hero was to come. The hero has come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it speaks to us of things that were and of things that are and are to come. We thank you that at Christmas we have this tremendous hope, this deep, abiding optimism that though all is not well in the world and in our lives, in our families, in our jobs, in our communities, in our nation, in our church, in the incarnate Lamb who is the Lion of Judah, we have hope God, give us that hope. Renew our hope in Christ today. And if we do not know Christ, if we have not trusted in Christ, may we receive the joy of his shed blood, the wine that has stained his clothes before, before we are crushed in the wrath which is to come. www.mercyhillnj.org We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.